one Mr. Johnson. Mr. Johnson was the sixth grade science teacher. In fact, he was the most exciting teacher that Tommy had ever had. Mr. Johnson had a master's degree in science. He had a red convertible sports car, a fiancé that Tommy thought was pretty, and he made learning science fun. In fact, this was the first time in Tommy's life where he had actually enjoyed learning science. Mr. Johnson would take them on nature walks and show them all about the different kinds of plants and insects and various different things that were out in the wild. Every now and then, he would say something like, Class, isn't it amazing how this bug evolved the ability to fly? Or class, isn't it amazing how this tree evolved the ability to protect itself from bugs? And then he would explain it, but you know that never really sunk into Tommy. It never really made a difference in what was being taught as far as Tommy could tell. It's not like he even stopped and thought about it very much until today. Today was very different. In fact, Mr. Johnson came into the class as his usual jovial, smiley self, and he said, Class, today we're going to learn about the origin of the universe. Can anybody tell me how it got here? <laughs> Eugene Lepton's hand went up. You know Eugene Lepton? Uh, the guy who read his science book for fun. He made a 100 on every science test that there ever was unless there was a bonus question. And then he made a 105. Mr. Johnson, who was accustomed to calling on Eugene, said, Yes, Eugene, can you tell me? And Eugene, in his most studious smart Alec boy said, about 13.82 billion years ago, a tiny ball of singularity exploded in what is commonly referred to as the Big Bang. And then he went into the textbook spiel on how the universe got here. Mr. Johnson said, great job, Eugene. I can see you've been reading your science book as usual. Thank you. Can anybody tell me how life got here? Katie raised her hand. And she said, yes, about 4.8 billion years ago, on the surface of the earth, there was a warm chemical soup. It was just made up of non-living chemicals. Something like lightning struck that warm chemical soup and caused the first amino acids to form. Somehow, they got together and formed the first single-celled amoeba. That amoeba evolved into bacteria. That bacteria evolved into a worm-like creature. That worm evolved ultimately into humans. Mr. Johnson said, thank you. Excellent answer. Now, Tommy realized that he had a problem. And out of the 40 kids in the class, so did 37 other ones. Because all their lives, they had been taught that God created the world and spoke the creatures and the plants and the worms and the birds and the fish into existence. And Tommy was listening to a man that he admired very much for his scientific knowledge. Well, yeah, I mean, he admired his dad. His dad could fix anything. His dad had taught them all about the Bible, but you know what? His dad didn't know that the sun was about 93 million miles on average from the earth. His dad didn't know that the moon was 240,000 miles from the earth. His dad didn't know that stuff falls toward the center of the earth at 9.8 meters per second squared. His dad didn't know the first and second and third laws of thermodynamics. There were lots of things about science his dad just didn't know. And Mr. Johnson, he could rattle all that stuff off the top of his head. And so Tommy was glad when uh, little Stephen raised his hand. Stephen was the preacher's son. Preacher down the road and Mr. Johnson said, Stephen, do you have a question? And Stephen said, yes, sir, I do. 
You could tell his voice was nervous, but, but he was still determined to say what he was going to say. Mr. Johnson said, Stephen, what's your question? Stephen said, that's not right. Mr. Johnson said, what's not right? What part of that's not right? Stephen said, God made everything. Mr. Johnson said, God made everything. Uh, Where did you get that piece of information? Who told you that? Stephen said, my dad. Where did your dad get that information? Mr. Johnson queried. Stephen said, from the Bible. Now, those 37 heads that were all listening and watching Stephen whipped around to Mr. Johnson to see what he was going to do with this because that's what they had all been taught to. And they were all very surprised when a grin crept across Mr. Johnson's face. And he said, you know what, Stephen? I am so glad that you brought that up. I was hoping someone would. And that was very surprising to them. And they were more surprised when he stepped over to his desk, opened the top left-hand drawer, and pulled out a black leather-bound book, looking about like that. And he said, Stephen, does your dad's Bible look anything like this? Stephen had to admit it looked very similar to that. And Mr. Johnson opened it up to the first pages of Genesis, and he started reading. And as he read, there were words like doeth, and maketh, and createth, and hast, and hath. And Mr. Johnson got done, and he said, Class, does that book sound old to you? Well, for whatever else it sounded, it did sound old. It sounded like, what, 1500 Shakespeare in English. He said, Class, this is an old book. He said, it's got some great ideas about how to interact with other people. In fact, there's, a, there's an idea in it called the golden rule. And it says, do unto others as you want them to do to you. He said, that's an outstanding, wonderful rule. And that has been a good rule to follow. But he said, it's also got a lot of stuff that's not right in it. He said, this is an old book that has ideas that are outdated. They're no longer scientific. In fact, he said with a chuckle, did you know that the people who believed in this thought that the world was a square and he flipped over to the book of Psalms and he read about the four corners of the earth and he said class we all know the earth doesn't have four corners don't we we've seen the pictures in uh, on google maps and we've seen our globes and we know it's a sphere and they didn't know that during bible times because not that they weren't smart they just didn't know all of the scientific facts we know And he put that Bible back in his drawer and he closed it and he left 37 kids sitting in their chairs wondering what in the world they were going to do. Do you think that happens across this country? You know, in one sense, that story is hypothetical, meaning that I don't know a person by the name of Mr. Johnson or Tommy from whom I have taken that story exactly. In another sense... It is so real that it happens tens or hundreds of times every day all across this country. I have an uncle-in-law who taught school for many years. I believe he was teaching sixth grade science. He was teaching the idea of creation for 16 years, if I understand it correctly. One year, his vice superintendent called him in and said, you cannot teach creation any longer. He said, can I then just teach the problems with evolution? And she said, no, you cannot. You teach exactly what is in the book. Now, 
my uncle-in-law, if I understand it, continued to teach what was right and then got out of that and moved to, I think, some type of administrative position. But what I'm telling you is all across the country, that is occurring on a regular basis. The indoctrination of evolution. Now, you don't have to take my word for it. This man's name is Daniel Dennett. He wrote a book called Darwin's Dangerous Idea. Let me give you a little history of Daniel Dennett. The atheistic evolutionary community has recognized four men that they call the four horsemen. These are supposedly the four men that it's a, it's a slight on the book of Revelation, and they say these four horsemen are bringing in the apocalypse of atheism that is going to overtake the ideas of religion. People are finally going to be enlightened and they're going to be able to see that religion does not hold up and that atheism and evolution are actually the truth. Daniel Dennett, in his book, Darwin's Dangerous Idea, wrote that if you teach your kids something other than creation, I mean, other than evolution. If you're teaching them creation, you're teaching them that God created Adam and Eve and God spoke the world into existence and going through Genesis 1. If that's what you're teaching your kid, then he says, we're going to explain to your kids that you are spreading falsehoods. And we're going to demonstrate that to your children at our earliest opportunity. Now, I and my co-worker, Eric Lyons, have gone through... Basically, every middle school textbook that we could find. We ordered every one that we could get our hands on, went through, and found how and where they are teaching evolution. The first part of the evolutionary scenario is the easiest to explain why it did not and could not happen. Uh, yesterday, last evening, we dealt with some scientific laws. We talked about the law of cause and effect. We talked about the law of design. Uh, this evening, we're going to deal with another scientific law, and it's called the law of biogenesis. Bio means life. Genesis means the beginning. Biogenesis is the law of the beginning of life. And here's what the law of the beginning of life says. It's very simple. It says, for every life that you see in this natural material world, it came from previously existing life of its own kind. Now, that doesn't seem all that profound, does it? In fact, five-year-olds are great at plumbing the depths of this particular scientific law. Mom, where did a peach come from? Well, it came from a peach tree. Of course, a kid doesn't stop there, does he ever? Well, where did the peach tree come from? Well, it came from a peach seed. Oh. Where did that peach seed come from? Well, it came from a peach tree. Oh. Where did that one come from? A peach seed. What about that seed? A peach tree. What about that peach tree? A peach seed. What's the ultimate answer to that? Where did a peach come from? Now see, according to evolution, there was a time 4.8 billion years ago or so that there was a warm chemical soup. Okay, now this is where I press pause in this discussion and say, hold on just a second. Let me tell you what they used to say. That's what they said. For 80 years, they said, on the surface of the earth, there was a warm chemical soup, and lightning struck it, and life evolved from there. That's for 80 years. You understand that's two generations. I'm 36 years old today. Did you know that? Today, I am 36 years old. I mean, if you want to wish me happy birthday later, well, you'd be a mess, because my birthday's not till uh, November 20th, but today I'm 36. Now, November 20th, I'll be 37. But... Uh, 
I have, I'm not even a single generation old, really. Uh, a generation on average is about 40 years. For 80 years, in every textbook that you would read, they said there was a warm chemical soup on the surface of the earth and lightning struck it. Now, about two years ago, they came forward and they said, oh, we've been wrong about that. That could never have happened. There was oxygen in the atmosphere and oxygen would have killed anything that even remotely looked like anything close to life. And so it couldn't have happened on the surface of the earth. It had to happen in a deep hydrothermal vent in the ocean. So now they're telling us that life evolved in a deep hydrothermal vent in the ocean. What are they going to tell us in another 40 years? They're not going to come up with the way that that happened in 40 years. And then they're going to say, you know what, we've been saying it was a deep hydrothermal vent. Do you understand that for two generations, the children that have been going to school in the United States of America have been told that life evolved from a warm chemical primary, uh, soup on the surface of the earth, and then within a sentence, you didn't even hear. Did you hear the shocking news that they changed that? No, you didn't, did you? Because with one sentence or one paragraph, they change it, and it gets changed in all the books, and now life supposedly evolved in a hydrothermal vent in the ocean floor. Now... Here's the other problem with the idea that life came from a warm chemical soup. You see, according to this idea, there were non-living chemicals, ammonia, hydrogen, things like that. And somehow something caused them to turn into amino acids. And then somehow those amino acids formed to get together to make proteins. And somehow those proteins formed to get together to make life. The problem with that is we know that that doesn't happen. In fact, we've been knowing it doesn't happen for hundreds of years. Uh, in the 1400s, they said, no, it happens all the time. It's something they call spontaneous generation. Spontaneous generation is when life pops into existence from previously existing non-living chemicals. It just spontaneously generates from the chemical properties that are going on with the air and whatever substance is in the air, whatever, oh, like elements like hydrogen, ammonium, etc. Now, they thought it was true, and they said, yeah, we can prove this. We can prove it beyond the shadow of a doubt. Take a T-bone steak and smack it on your kitchen counter in the middle of the summer. Leave a window open and come back in two weeks. You know what's going to spontaneously generate on a steak in two weeks in the summer on your kitchen counter? Yeah. Maggots. They just spontaneously generate. Did you see any maggots crawl onto your steak? No, you didn't. And yet there are maggots there now. How did they get there? They're, they spontaneously generated. For hundreds of years, people believed spontaneous generation was true. Then in 1660, there was a man by the name of Francisco Reedy. Some people pronounce his name Reddy, R-E-D-I. He said, do you know what? I don't think that maggots spontaneously generate. And so he did an experiment. It was rather simple. He put some meat in jars and he left them unsealed. He put some meat over here in jars and he hermetically sealed them airtight so nothing could get into them. Flies landed on the unsealed meat maggots formed. Flies tried to get in, but they could not. Maggots did not form. He said, you know what? I know this is novel, but I believe flies are producing maggots. They said, no. No, you got a problem. He said that your problem is you didn't let air get into the meat because air is what causes spontaneous generation. If you were let air get into that meat that you sealed airtight, well, spontaneous generation would have occurred there as well. He said, okay. Now, let's see what else we can do about this. Took some jars, put meat in them, didn't put anything on them. Took some jars, put meat in them, sealed them airtight. And then he had a middle category where he put meat in the bottom of them and he put some netting type like gauze, medical gauze type substance on the top of them. So air could get in, but the flies could not. Flies landed on the meat, maggots, flies 
tried to get into the meat that was sealed. They couldn't. Flies landed on the netting. They laid their eggs on the netting. Maggots formed on the netting, but not on the meat. He said, there you go. I believe that I have proven that flies produce maggots. They said, we think you have. That's amazing. They said, so you're telling us that spontaneous generation doesn't occur? He said, no, no, no. I think things still spontaneously generate. I just don't think maggots do. Oh, they said, yeah, there's all kinds of other evidence. You know, take some old sweaty rags and you wrap them around some wheat and you stick it in the corner of your barn and you come back in a month and guess what you'll have? Spontaneously generated. You know what spontaneously generates from wheat and rags in a barn? Mice. Just like that. I mean, they just pop into existence. Sure enough, you take a log that has some bark on it and you put it in a wet ditch and you come back in a month and you see what happens. You pop the bark off of that log and you will see bugs and beetles and grub worms and ants and termites. Where do you think all that stuff comes from? Spontaneous generation, they say. They said that for another 200 years after Francisco Reedy. Until 1868. In 1868, spontaneous generation was destroyed by a man that you're very familiar with. In fact, you probably read his name about every other day. Now, you might not know that you read his name, but you do. If you go to your refrigerator and you pull out some milk and you look on the side of that milk, you're going to see a word that starts with a P. What word is that? Pasteurized. Do you know why that milk is called pasteurized milk? Because the cows that produced it lived in a... No, see why? That, that's not right. There's, there's one in every bunch that, that gives me that answer. No, it's not. It's pasteurized because of a man by the name of Louis Pasteur. In 1868, Louis Pasteur decided he was going to prove once and for all to show everybody that spontaneous generation does not occur. Here's what he did. At that time, 200 years after Reedy, they had microscopes and they could zoom in on stuff like meat broth and they could see that there were tiny little things swimming all around in the meat broth. I mean, you understand that. Let's say you make yourself some chicken, chicken noodle soup. You put it on your kitchen counter and you leave for three days and you come back. Are you going to eat your chicken noodle soup? Well, you can't see any little fish swimming around in it. You can't see anything in it, but you know there's something in it that could probably harm you, some type of bacteria that you can't see, and so you throw it down the drain and you don't eat it. Even though there's nothing in it that you can see, there is some type of living organism. Well, by 1868, they had microscopes that you could zoom in and they would see millions of these little organisms. And they said, okay, all you people that don't believe in spontaneous generation, where did that come from? Well... Louis Pasteur said it came from other organisms in the air. They said, no, it did not. You don't see any of those other organisms flying around in the air. That's not true. He said, all right, I'm going to prove it to you. He made some flasks where he would boil meat broth or hay broth. And they had a special S-shaped glass curve so that air could get back into them. For all the people that said you've got to have air for spontaneous generation to occur. And the S-shape was designed to catch all of the microscopic organisms due to it, the gravity pulling it down to the bottom of the little S-shape. So air came back into the flask. All the microscopic organisms were captured in the S-shape. He waited a day, no microscopic organisms. Some of them he would wait a month, no microscopic organisms. If I understand correctly, some of them he waited a year, no microscopic organisms formed in the meter hay broth, and then he would break the neck off of it so that the air could go straight back in without his little trap? And what would happen when he would break the neck off and air went straight back in? Microscopic organisms would form. In fact, he proved in 1868, life comes from previously existing life 
of its own kind. That's what he nailed down. You don't get life from non-living chemicals. It never happens. In fact, the process that your milk goes through, I don't know if you've ever been to a dairy and watched it. We went to the Mayfield Dairy on your way going up to East Tennessee. In you guys' case, it would be going down from East Tennessee. But anyway, if you go to Mayfield Dairy, you are told how the milk comes in. They show you all of the big containers where it goes. And then they explain to you that that milk goes into a compartment where they heat it up to, I believe it's 160 degrees for 30 seconds. They flash heat it, and then they pump it into the milk jugs and put a seal on it before it ever touches any air. Now, when you flash heat milk and stick it in a jug and seal it hermetically, what are you doing? If no microscopic organisms are in it when it goes into the bottle and none can come from the outside, then you don't have microscopic organisms in your milk anymore. Now, once you open it and the air gets into the milk, well, then those microscopic organisms can then form. In fact, I was in the Ukraine doing some mission work, and they have boxes of grape juice that you can buy and take with you. That's what we used for the Lord's Supper. The boxes of grape juice will hold on a shelf for years and years and years. You know, they give you a shelf life of like one to three years, but really, in theory, it could just sit on that shelf, and as long as there's no hole in it, it would just still be good grape juice as long as it was there. But they say once you cut a hole in it or you take the lid off of it, then you've got a week to drink it. Well, why is that? Microscopic organisms getting into the grape juice after you open it, after it's been pasteurized, but you then let microscopic organisms into it. Okay, we understand that. That is nothing, nothing new. But according to evolution, what had to happen in the past? Life had to arise from non-living chemicals. Now, you know the difference between an unproven idea and a disproven idea. An unproven idea would be something like this. Hey, at my house, I've got a, oh, let's say, I've got a stairwell that I believe at the bottom of that there is probably one sixteenth inch of dust. Okay, now, do you know that for a fact? No, you don't, because you hadn't really ever looked at the house where I'm talking about, and you haven't looked at the bottom of the stairs. That's unproven. We can't say one way or the other because I haven't given you any evidence for that. I just made an assertion. Now, a disproven idea is if you go to my house and you go to the bottom of the steps and you measure the dust and it just so happens that my wife is a clean freak and there's no dust at the bottom of my steps. Now, you have an idea that is a disproven idea, not an unproven idea. Now, what the evolutionists are trying to tell us is that, yeah, hey, life came from non-living chemicals. It's just an unproven idea. We haven't found out how it happened yet, but it really did happen. But do you understand we've been doing experiments for the last 150 years, and in every single experiment, we always arrive at the exact same conclusion. Life comes from previously existing life in nature. You can't get life to spontaneously generate out of nothing. It's impossible. Now, if you wanted to go into the mechanics of why it's impossible, it's because you have something in your body called DNA, and that DNA is composed of millions and billions and billions of bits of information, and information doesn't spontaneously generate from non-superintended processes. It just doesn't happen. 
Now, there's another aspect to the law of biogenesis. Remember we said biogenesis says that life comes from previously existing life of its own kind. Now, let me illustrate that. When I was a kid, now sometimes this gets a little fuzzy, but work with me. When I was a kid, my parents had a dog. Uh, the dog wandered up to our house when we lived in East Tennessee, Bluntville, Tennessee, close to Johnson City there. My parents had a dog, and uh, this dog we thought was a boy. So we named the dog Max. Well, come to find out, Max was not a boy. Max was going to have babies soon after she arrived at our house. And so we named her Maxine. And then shortened it to Max because that's what we've been calling her for weeks. So her real name was Maxine, but Max for short. And we were going to bring Max from East Tennessee to where my dad had gotten a new job there in Middle Tennessee, as I recall. And Max was about to have babies. So we took Max along with us, and the night we were spending to move, Max was going to have babies that night. So we put her in the bathtub. And the next morning, we woke up, and I ran in to see Max. And sure enough, during the night, Max had had eight of the most beautiful baby hippopotamuses you have ever, ever seen. And, boy, they were so cute. We raised those baby hippopotamuses. We sold them to zoos. And that's how I went to Freed Hardman University. That's it. Straight up. Okay, you know what I said? My mind gets a little fuzzy when I'm starting to think back. You know, no, that, that is not how it... No, that, sorry, I'm sorry. That, that's not what occurred. You guys don't believe that at all, I'm sure. Because, hey, dogs don't have baby hippopotamuses, do they? They always have puppies. But here's what really happened. I got up the next morning, looked in, and Max had given birth to eight of the most beautiful half-puppy, half-lizards you've ever seen. We called them luppies. They were the cutest things you've ever seen. They had a little forked tongue and fur on the front half and scale. You know you know what? Yeah, no, that's not. Sorry, I'm sorry. Like I said, it gets a little fuzzy. Here's what really happened. We got a 99% puppy, 1% bird had one little feather on the top of their head, kind of looked like a peacock feather. That's what really happened. We called them puppies. Boy, they were cute. Cutest little things. Bird and puppies. I know it takes some of us a little. Now, were you there when my dog gave birth to the puppies? Were you there when anybody's dog gave birth to puppies around? No. But you would never believe that a dog gave birth to anything other than puppies. It doesn't happen. Biologically, it's impossible. Dogs always give birth to puppies. That's the law of biogenesis. Life comes from previously existing life. Oh, and there's another catch. Of its own kind. Do you know that scientists have been mutating the fruit fly for the last 100 years? In fact, they thought, hey, if we take a fruit fly... We can get a new generation of fruit fly every 12 days. And they said, if we zap it with radiation and mutate it, we can speed up what would happen in nature and we can get evolution to happen right here in front of our eyes. For 100 years, they've been zapping fruit flies with radiation, mutating them, and then picking the ones they want to try to copy natural selection plus mutation. For 100 years. They have the equivalent of what they would say millions of years of evolution occurring here. And guess what you always still have at the end of the day? 
a fruit fly. You know, they've never changed a fruit fly into a 99% fruit fly and 1% bird. Never got a single feather on that fruit fly. Never don't have ever a scale on it. In fact, they can mutate it to such a degree, degree that it will grow a wing on top of its head. They can mutate it to, su- to such a degree that it will grow a leg where its antenna should be. You know why? Because the information for the leg is already in the genetic makeup of the fruit fly. The information for the wing is already in the genetic makeup of the fruit fruit fly. You know why they can't get a scale on a fruit fly? The genetic information is not there. It's not part of a fruit fly. And so, you see that life comes from previously existing life in nature of its own kind. Now, I belabor that point simply to show you that the Bible has had it right all along. If you were to open your Bibles, and I hope you have them tonight, and you can turn to Genesis chapter 1, when you do turn to Genesis chapter 1, you're going to get the answer that you can give your five-year-old for where he says the peach came from, and then the peach tree and the peach and the peach tree and the peach. Well, here's the answer that you can give to your five-year-old that is in total opposition to the idea of evolution. If you were to look in Genesis chapter 1, and you look down there in about verse all, make it 12 or so, God said, the earth, no, verse 11. Then God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit. Oh, now read it close, gang. According to its kind. What is going on in Genesis chapter 1? God lays down the law of biogenesis. He creates the first of every kind and then He instructs them and designed them to multiply after their own kind. Do you understand that the theory, the idea, the disproven idea of evolution says that billions of years ago, life spontaneously generated from non-life. Disproven. And that life was a single-celled amoeba that ultimately changed into a multi-celled bacteria and then to a worm and then to a fish. Disproven. Science shows that can't be the case. Oh, and the Bible had it nailed all along. You know, all those years that people were talking about spontaneous generation and saying it was a possibility, hundreds of years before Reedy, even between Reedy and Pasteur, and they said, no, life can't spontaneously generate. The Bible had things multiply after its own kind from the very beginning of its writing. Now, you're probably familiar with a man by the name of Charles Darwin, I should think. Charles Darwin arrived on the scene and he said, you know what, I believe that all the life forms in the world came from a single life form millions or billions of years ago. And he said, I'll tell you what I I, I can show. He said, I found finches. I found, well, there were actually 13 species of finch. Eventually, what they found out, he only found nine that he labeled different species and only six of them were actually different species. But he said, here's what it looks like is happening. These finches came from other finches and the finch that it was born from, some of them had thin beaks and some of them had thicker beaks. And during a time of a drought, the ones who had thicker beaks would grow thicker and they would survive and the thinner beaked ones would not survive. And he said, I'll tell you what I think. All of these finches came from one 
original species. And he said, I'll tell you what else. If they can change their beak size over 100 years, 200 years, what could they do if they had 2 million years? Or 2 billion years? And so there were two people, a couple by the name of Peter and Rosemary Grant, and they went to the Galapagos Islands and they started studying the finches. And here's what they found out. After 10 years of drought, the average size for the finch beak was changed to, I think it was 0.06 millimeters thicker. And they said, now look at that. If you can get 0.06 millimeters thicker after, I think it was a 10-year drought, what could you get in 100 years? What 0.6 millimeters? What could you get in 1,000? Six millimeters. What could you get in a million? What about a billion? Maybe you could change it from a beak to a snout. You know, here's the problem with that. Let me show it to you. Uh, let's say that I have been practicing doing some running, and I've been thinking that I want to work on my one mile, and I say, all right, guys, I'm going to run, I'm going to run a mile, and I start out, and I'm running one mile in ten minutes. And I say, you know what, that's just not good enough, and I train for a week, and the next week I'm running one mile in nine minutes. And I say, you know, nine's still kind of slow. The next week I train, and now it's been two weeks I've been training, and I'm running a mile in eight minutes. I'm doing better. Doing pretty good. The next week I train, and I'm running a mile in seven minutes. I've trained for three weeks. I've trimmed three minutes off of my time. Now let me ask you a question. In a total of ten weeks, how fast am I going to be running a mile? No time. I'm trimming a minute off of my time every single week. Am I ever going to be able to run a mile in zero time? You know, there's going to come a point at which I can no longer improve. Do you know you can study a finch and you can watch that finch adapt to have a little bit thicker beak? Or a little bit smaller beak? Or a little bit fatter body? Or a little bit skinnier body? just like you can mutate those fruit flies for a hundred years. But what does that finch always stay? A finch. They've never seen a finch change into part finch, part lizard. Never seen a finch change into part finch, part dog, part cat. They've never seen a finch change into part finch, part raven. It's just always a finch. There are lines that you cannot cross. And where and when were those lines established? They were established at creation when God brought into existence the first, pe- the first peach tree and it multiplied after its own kind from their own. Now, do you remember what I told you that uh, Dennett said that if you taught creation, he was going to explain to your children that you're spreading falsehoods? Well, I'm going to show you some examples of what is used in the textbooks to teach evolution. And I'm going to let you decide who's spreading falsehoods and who is not. Here's how the scenario is portrayed in most of your science books or your children's science book. They say that before the Industrial Revolution, the lichens on the trees were good camouflage for the light-colored English peppered moth. They weren't so good camouflage for the dark-colored English peppered moth. And if you were a bird, looking at those two moths, which of those two would you eat? Well, obviously, you would eat the dark-colored one because you could see it much better than the light-colored one. And so that's why they said 95% of the English peppered moth population was light colored and only 5% was dark colored. 
Now, they said after the Industrial Revolution, when the soot killed the lichens on the trees, now if you were a bird, which one of these two would you eat? Obviously, the light-colored one is much more visible to you if you're a bird. And so, they said that's the reason that the population changed from 95% light to 95% dark. And from 5% dark to 5% light, they said because this is natural selection taking place. The bird is seeing the one that is not as camouflaged and eating it and causing the population to change. In fact, if you paid attention to the bottom, they call this melanism Evolution in action. They said this is an example of evolution taking place right before your very eyes. This is in most standard textbooks. Teaching evolution. Let's analyze it just for a second. Uh, Before the Industrial Revolution, there was genetic information in a moth population to have two kinds of moth. What kind? Light and dark. Let's say two varieties would be a better statement. After the Industrial Revolution, there was the genetic information in the moth population to have two varieties. What two varieties? Light and dark. What did the moth change into? Nothing. It was still the English peppered moth. The genetic information was still the exact same that was in the English peppered moth gene pool. Uh, uh, Secondly, let me ask you a question. You ever tried to get a five-year-old to stand still for a picture? You ever tried to get two five-year-olds to stand still for a picture? You ever tried to get two English peppered moths to perfectly strategically position themselves to sit on a tree trunk perfectly perfectly, so you could take these two pictures? You know how hard that would be? Oh, you know what else? English pepper moths don't land on tree trunks. They have been studying English pepper moths for 40 years and they've only ever found two that have landed on tree trunks. English pepper moths land on the bottom of leaves that are green. And if I understand it correctly, they fly mostly at night. So where did they get these pictures? They caught the English pepper moths and artificially placed them on the trees or they glued them or pinned them on the trees. Now, you would think that if they knew this, they would take this out of their books. But I want you to listen to what Bob Ritter, a Canadian textbook writer, said. He knew the English pepper moths were fake and he said, yeah, but I mean, you got to look at the audience. How convoluted do you want to make it for a first-time learner? He said, yeah, I know it's not really true, but it just makes a point so well. Now notice, he says the advantage of this example of natural selection is that it's extremely visual. Think with me just for a second. Suppose that I were to tell you I've got a new idea. I've got something I think is groundbreaking scientifically. And you said, Kyle, what? And I said, well, I'll tell you what. I've got some cows that when they eat green grass, they grow purple spots. You say, you do? I say, yeah, back back in Alabama, I've got some. You want to see them? You guys say, yeah, I'd love to. I say, all right, I'll drive them up here next weekend. So I drive them up. I've got five snow-white cows, and I put them out on the lawn, and I say, guys, I'll tell you what, if you'll watch them eat green grass when we come back after lunch, then they'll have grown purple spots. Uh, We have a fellowship meal. I go back and eat me some coconut pie, and we come back, and I say, hey, guys, you want to see my cows? And you look at those cows, and guess what? They got purple spots all over them. And I say, see, I told you. You say, well, that is something. And one of you goes up to one of those cows, you're petting on it. You then have some scratch or itch on your forehead. You rub your forehead and your buddy starts laughing at you. And you say, what are you laughing at me for? Your buddy says, well, you, I mean, you got purple all over your head. Well, sure enough, you look down, your hand has purple on it. You think, where did that come from? I did just pet those cows. with the... Okay, so you go over to the cow, you pull out something like a handkerchief. You start rubbing on those purple spots and they come off. 
And you come to me and you say, Kyle, you said this proved that white cows who eat green grass grow purple spots. You painted these spots on there. And I said, oh, yeah, I know. I painted them on there. You said, isn't that lying? Isn't that dishonest? I said, yeah, but you know what? The advantage of this example is that it's extremely visual. Yeah, I lied to you, but you could sure see it really well, couldn't you? That's what Bob Ritter said. Listen to it. The advantage of this example is that it's extremely visual. Now, Bob, don't you know that it's wrong? Yeah, it's wrong, but boy, it sure looks good. And you mean to tell me this is in virtually all of the textbooks or has been for the past several decades? Yeah. This study was done in the 50s. Continue with me. We get... We want to get across the idea of selective adaptation. Later on, they can look at it more critically. What's more critically mean? Oh, later on, they can look at it and realize that we weren't telling them the truth. That's what more critically means. When is later on? Do you know that uh, there was a guy who was complaining about this particular piece of evidence for evolution who had a Ph.D. in a scientific discipline? And he said, I've never seen it. Do you understand what that means? He's been through every... You know what a terminal degree is? A terminal degree is you can't go any further. That's as far as you can go. You can get a PhD in a scientific discipline and that's where you have to stop. He had been through every phase of schooling available to get a PhD in the sciences. And he said, I've never seen that this is false. Do you know when later on is? If your kids happen to come to a creation evolution seminar like this and the, what, 50 that we get compared to the millions that we cannot reach, they don't get to critically look at it later on. Because for most all of them, there is no later on. Now, is somebody spreading falsehoods? Yeah. Who is it not? The person who's teaching creation. Who is it really? Evolution. Evolution is false. It's been false. There's not a single aspect of the evolution that's taught about life spontaneously generating from non-life and then changing to different kinds of life. Not a single aspect of that that's true. Right, continue with me. I'll give you another example of this. This guy's name is Ernst Haeckel. Ernst Haeckel in 1860 read Charles Darwin's On the Origin of Species by Natural Selection. In fact, he thought it was the greatest book he'd ever read. It was translated into German in 1860, a year after it came out in English. He read it. He was German. He said, this is amazing. I'm going to prove once and for all that this is true. And so he came up with the law of embryology. Here's what he said actually occurs. He said, ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. Now, I know you guys all understand that. I won't even have to explain to you what that means. I can see the understanding in your eyes that you could easily explain to me what ontogeny recapitulating phylogeny means. Couldn't no, you couldn't. You know why? Because it's very jargonated terminology that is intended for you to only get it if you are in the particular circles. Here's what he said. He said, ontogeny, the growth of an embryo, recapitulates or re-goes through, again, an animal's phylogeny, its supposed evolutionary history. So he says, as you see an embryo growing... If you will zoom in it on the right time, it's going through its evolutionary history. Let me explain what that means human-wise. He said humans start out in a single cell just like an amoeba. They go to just a few multi-cells like a bacteria. Zoom in right there. You got them in the bacteria stage. He said if you will wait just a little while, they grow gill slits. 
zoom in right there. They've got gill slits. Boom, you get them in their fish stage. You wait just a little while longer, you zoom in, you get them in their monkey state. He said, you can zoom in on an embryo and you can see how similar it looks to all the other ones. Right here, I'm comparing, he says, a dog, a pig, a turtle, a human, a salamander, a fish, and look at that, they've all got gill slits right there. He said, boom, that's proof of it. Well, some of his colleagues said, well, hold on just a second, uh, Hegel. Uh, you know, we've looked at some embryos and uh, what you're drawing doesn't look anything like the embryo. Where'd you get those pictures? He said, oh, I drew some of them from memory. Oh, and he said, sometimes I would draw the exact same embryo three times and label it something different every time. Sometimes I'd draw a pig embryo and I'd label it a dog, a pig, and a human. They said, so you uh, so you fabricated this? And if I understand it correctly, he just said, yeah. But it still proves the point. Do you understand that from 1870 on, we have known that Haeckel's embryos are fake, folks. Fake. And yet they have been in the majority of textbooks teaching evolution for the last 100 years. I was talking to the Alabama Christian Academy 10th grade and I was going over this information. Their biology teacher was sitting in the class and I got to the textbook from the University of Western Florida, Evolutionary Analysis. He piped up. He said, you know what? That's the book I use. And it's got Haeckel's embryos in it proving evolution. Now, let me show you how much we know this is not proof of evolution at all. This is an article from a magazine titled Natural History. It's by a man named Stephen Jay Gould. Stephen Jay Gould was recognized as one of the world's foremost evolutionary teachers. He wrote an article titled Atrocious in which he said Haeckel's distortions did not help Darwin. And then he said Haeckel remains most famous today as the chief architect and propagandist for a famous argument. Now listen to me. That science disproved long ago. He's writing this in the year 2000. We've known for 130 years it was false, and yet it's still being used, he says, in the majority. Watch this. We should therefore not be surprised that Haeckel's drawing entered 19th century textbooks, but we do, I think, have the right to be astonished and ashamed by a century of mindless recycling that's led to the persistence of these drawings in a large number, if not the majority, of modern textbooks. Virtually every textbook that we found had some form of Haeckel's embryos in them. And we've known it's false for 120 years. I was in Maryland, right outside of Washington, D.C. I was speaking to a group, and I think it was two weeks later, a uh, ninth grader sent me an email. Uh, my card's back there. got my email address on it. got my phone number. I tell anybody, if you've got any kind of Bible questions or science questions, you just send it to us. We'll see what we can do for the answers. Sent me an email. She said, guess what happened to me today? She said, I went into science class, and they were teaching evolution. And they used Haeckel's embryos and the English peppered moths. She said, I almost busted out laughing out loud. Because two weeks before, you had come and shown us how false those were. Two weeks before. What if I hadn't been there? What if two weeks before there was not a person who explained to them that Haeckel's embryos have been disproven for 120 years? And that the English pepper moss don't prove anything. Might have been a very different story for that young lady, wouldn't it? And yet she was equipped 
to deal with the false information that she was given because an eldership decided they were going to make sure that the people in their area at least had the opportunity to see this stuff. Let me ask you a question. Why is it that if we send a textbook down to Scotland that has the truth that I'm presenting to you this evening in it, and they've been taught evolution, and that's what they're getting taught over and over and over and over again, if we give them a single textbook that tells the truth that is so intolerable to them that a father who is an atheist will mount a campaign to have the person that gave them the book removed from the classroom. Why is that the case? I'll tell you why. Because if you let creation stand beside evolution, evolution cannot win. It's an unscientific, disproven, uncritically accepted idea that cannot stand next to creation. Why do you think that there are not classes all over this country that say, hey, if evolution is such a scientifically robust idea, let's teach evolution, let's teach creation, and let's see which one comes out on top. You can't do that. Because if you were to teach creation beside of evolution, and you were to hear that, oh, evolution says that life came from non-living creatures and then non-living chemicals and then changed into other kinds of animals, Creation says that didn't happen. What science say? Oh, science says it didn't happen. And if you were to go down the line of what we know to be scientific, evolution would get demolished. There's a reason that only evolution is taught in this country. It's because if it was compared to creation, creation would destroy it. Do you understand that for the past 50 years, evolution has virtually been the only thing taught as far as systematically across our country, and yet still to this day, one out of two people believe that the world was created in its present form some six to 10,000 years ago. They've been trying to brainwash our kids for 50 years and they can't get it out of them. They can't beat it out of them. Because creation is scientifically accurate and evolution is not. And somebody is spreading falsehoods. But I'll tell you who it's not. It's not the creationist. It's not the people that are explaining that there is a God in heaven who created the world and He brought life into existence and He told that life to multiply after its own kind. That's not who's spreading falsehoods. You don't have to take my word for who's spreading falsehoods. You just listen to their own people. Explain to you that what they're teaching is... I was debating a man by the name of Dan Barker. I was going... This was my first debate... I was going up to South Carolina, and I had uh, looked up a little congregation to worship with them the night before I was there going to be doing the debate Thursday night. Wednesday night, this congregation was out in the boondocks. You couldn't get to this congregation unless you knew how to get there, and I did not. I had to follow my GPS, and it was at the back part of a state Park that they used this building. It was very difficult to get to, and the congregation was about 45 people. When I got there, I explained to them why I was there, and there were two people that came up to me out of a congregation of 45 people. I think this was providential. 
One of them said, I was an atheist my whole life until I was 45 years old. Another one said, I was an atheist until I was 19. And I said, what made you change your mind? Why did you become a Christian? And here's what the one who was an atheist until he was 45 years old, here's what he said. He said, it started sounding fishy to me, this evolution idea. And so I started really looking at it. He said, and I realized it was false. I realized the evidence was not there for evolution. I realized that what I had been taught all my life was not true. And he said, so I started looking at this idea of creation and realized it did have the scientific backing. And so I started looking at if there's a creator, then what's that creator want me to do? And folks, this man was a member of the Lord's church because at 45 years old, he said, I'm going to start looking for the truth. And you shall know the truth. And the truth shall make you free. I'll tell you something that's not true. Evolution. It's not true because it doesn't match what we know scientifically and it's not true because it doesn't match what the Bible says happened in the past. Do you know what would happen if every single person in this world decided that they were going to stop all pretenses, they were going to quit hanging on to ideas just because that's what they had been told or what they had been taught, they were going to not try to fit in, not going to try to impress people, they were just going to find the truth. Do you know what would happen? If a person just went to find the truth, if he just spoke where the Bible speaks and is silent where the Bible is silent, I'll tell you what would happen. They would read a message that is 2,000 years old that says, Repent and be baptized every one of you. And the sincerity of their heart and their search for truth would cause them to be pricked in the heart and they would be baptized into Christ for the remission of their sins and they would be added to the Lord's church just exactly like 3,000 were on the day of Pentecost. That's what would happen if people started looking for the truth. Isn't it time? Isn't it time we determined that we will teach truth and we will make sure as many people as possible, know the truth. Let me tell you what happened to me and I'll conclude this lesson. We had a couple who were on our website looking for things. They were probably looking for things about evolution. Uh, they wrote to us and they said, as we were looking on your website, we went to the what you believe section on your website and we found that you're teaching that baptism is for the remission of sins. They said, we've never heard that. They said, all our lives we have lived and worshipped in faith-only congregations. We have never heard the idea that you need to be immersed into water to come in contact with the blood of Jesus. We've never heard that. They said, we went back to several of our friends and asked them to baptize us and they would not. So the question that they were asking us is, could we baptize each other? Because we know we need to be baptized into Christ for the remission of our sins, but we haven't found anybody in our area that can do it. What is that? You know, that is a prime example of an honest-hearted person searching for the truth and finding it and being willing to do whatever it takes to obey it. 
Are you that person? That honest-hearted person who hasn't become a Christian yet but needs to? Are you the person who has and maybe you've wandered from the truth but you need to come back? You need to rededicate yourself to truth? If you need to respond to the Lord's invitation anyway, I hope you will as we stand and as we say. When the saints and the sinners shall be parted right and left, are you ready for that day to come? Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready for the judgment day? Are you ready? Are you ready? For the judgment day, there's a bright day coming, a bright day coming, there's a bright day coming by and by. But its brightness shall only come to them that love the Lord. Are you ready for that day to come? Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready for the judgment day? Are you ready? Are you ready for the judgment day? There's a sad day coming, a sad day coming. There's a sad day coming by and by. When the sinner shall hear his doom depart, I know ye not. Are you ready for that day to come? Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready for the judgment day? Are you ready? Are you ready for? One hundred ninety-one. Rex will lead us in that hymn as a closing hymn this evening, and uh, afterwards Casey Waters will lead us in a dismissal prayer. Couldn't help but think of Paul's words in Colossians chapter two and verse eight, as Brother Kyle presented his lesson tonight, when he said, "Let no man spoil you through his philosophy and vain deceit or vain deceptions." And clearly the uh, various efforts to uh, argue uh, evolutionary theory stem from false philosophy, human philosophy, and vain deceptions. And we really appreciate the message that Kyle brought to us this evening. Hey, I remember those moths on the tree in high school science, and I'm sure you do as well. And the finch beaks, smaller and larger, and the bat wing and the human hand, you know all of that, uh, and the embryology. Uh, and that stuff continues to be taught in our schools and, and to many young minds today. Thank you, Kyle, for your message. In the morning, Kyle is going to discuss in the Bible class hour the reliability of the Bible. And then in the uh, worship hour, he's going to consider the fruits of atheism, consequences, and uh, implications of it and the effects of it on society.
And then science in the Bible will be his topic at 1 o'clock. So any and all that can be a part of any of these, you are certainly welcome. Of course, all the members of the uh, South Highway 5 congregation here in the morning for Bible class and, and worship. Thank you all so much for coming. Uh, the presence of visitors is so greatly appreciated. And uh, we hope that you've been uh, encouraged and that your faith has been fortified as a result of your being with us tonight. Thank you again. Brother Rex. First verse only. Be not dismayed, whate'er be tied, God will take care of you. Beneath His wings of love abide, God will take care of you. God will take care of you through every day or all the way. He will take care of you. God will take care of you. Lord, thank you for this ap- this evening um, and Brother Kyle Button and his presentation. Um, all that we need to know, need, we need to hear, we need to equip ourselves with so that we can take this back into our daily lives. Um, help us do that in these coming days. Um, thank you again for this opportunity to gather together. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.